Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. If you want to listen live, all you have to do is download the iHeartRadio app and search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Also, if you want to catch this show on video, be sure to check out Zumo TV, channel 719. That's where you can find SportsGrid's Fantasy Sports Network. Enjoy the show, and thanks so much for listening. Fantasy Sports Today is back here on SportsGrid. Welcome in, Craig and Joe here with you. Follow us on Twitter at SportsGrid, at Craig Mish at Joe Pizzapia. Go back and watch our show on demand, first hour of our show. Going to be a lot of fun on this hour of the program. We're going to hit on some of the older players in sports, the oldest players in sports, because we have one player who wants to continue to play. Uh, But before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our odds for the day in the NFL. And we've touched on a lot of the win totals. You can go back again, watch our show FST On Demand, or even the audio version, by the way, which is really cool. Chris Pavona puts those up every single day. You can hear our show uh, FST, which is on iTunes, uh, Google Play Store, audioboom.com. Just a great way to listen to us if you can't watch. And certainly I understand we're a new way of watching shows. That's for sure. Some people still like watching on television. If you don't have an Amazon Fire Stick, what are you doing? Go get one. Put it, put it in. You can watch our show every day. Uh, but let's take a look at some of the odds, Joe. This is going to be the coach of the year. We're going to start off with this here for 2020. And let's take a quick look here at what the odds are. This is at the FanDuel Sportsbook. You can bet these right now. Bill Belichick is the favorite at 12-1. to 1. I found it odd that Mike McCarthy is also <laughs> tied for the favorite here at 12-1. to 1. But I guess new coaches tend to win these things sometimes. So uh, I had to look a little bit deeper into that. It is indeed true. The percentage of coaches that start first with their new team win. Uh, Bruce Arians is at 14-1. to 1. Frank Reich, 14 to 1. We got Cliff Kingsbury, 18 to 1. Sean McDermott, 18 to 1. And if you go to the FanDuel Sportsbook, you can also see that there are a few coaches that have a little uh, higher odds. So, Joe, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, is there someone here that you like, or is there a dart throw that's not here that you like even more? Uh, let's see. I think there's one, at least maybe two on this list that I could see working out. If Philip Rivers does play very well and has a renaissance behind that outstanding offensive line, again, he's going from the PFF graded worst offensive line in football to one of the PFF's highest top three offensive lines in football. So that is a huge swing for Philip Rivers. Arm strength isn't an option. He's got not one, but two very capable potential running backs here. He's got T.Y. Hilton. He's got a young guy in Pittman. I know Hilton's a little older. There could be a lot of success there. And I think Frank Reich last year, up until the wheels kind of came off, at least in the first half of the season, was my vote for coach of the year. Because I don't know how you lose Andrew Luck a week before the season and don't have your team just completely implode on itself. And it didn't. And partially it's because of the leadership of Frank Reich. I think he's an outstanding coach an outstanding high-class individual, and I would love to see him get this award. And I think he's in a spot where, I know you disagree, it could be uh, the other side of the spectrum. You talked about the downside of the Colts, but the upside of them winning this division, I think, could very well see him as coach of the year. And then Cliff Kingsbury, because I think if Arizona can find a way to make the playoffs, and I'll tell you what, man, they are going to be a difficult matchup. I think this is the name here. Yeah, I think I so, think too. 18 to 1, Kingsbury, to me, is the one that sticks out the most. You have a young athletic quarterback, doesn't know any better. Uh, he got familiar. He got some confidence as the year went on. There were some good moments and bad moments, but he's a rookie quarterback. What are you going to expect? You've given him a primetime weapon in Hopkins. You've still got leadership on the field with Larry Fitzgerald, who's coming back again. You have a running game, too which is going to help a lot. Last year, you know, I know Chase Edmonds had a couple moments, but really, when you give a rookie quarterback no running game to work with, 
it's difficult. And if you're going to give him Kenyon Drake and Kenyon Drake is going to have at least a respectable season, let's put him down for 1,100 yards and eight touchdowns or something like that. That's good enough to free this kid up. And potentially they did some good things in the draft as well, where they could turn this Cardinals team around quickly. I think they could steal a couple victories. And if they steal a couple early, I think momentum is a hell of a drug, and I could see the Cardinals being decent too, and maybe a wild card team. And if so, Kingsbury with eighteen to one is my guy. Yeah, I would. You know, I just it's sad to agree like that, but I, I really, I he's the it one. It never happens down. on this show. I no, think this but, is but great I, television for everybody. You never well, because, agree with look them. Arizona. What would it require for this guy to win the Coach of the Year? They'd only have to win like three or four more games, and I know that seems like a lot, but they have talent there. So, I mean, the expectation for Belichick. Look, if, if they go 14-2, and two, he's going to win the coach of the year. That's true. But if not, no. McCarthy, I don't get that one at all. Arians, they'll put it to Brady. I'm not a believer in Reich. I, I am a believer in Reich. I take that back. I think he is a good coach. I, I think that the quarterbacking is going to be a disaster for them. Uh, um, see, I, I, they, don't, I don't think that. I love one year. Yeah, you, show. Well, you and I will see things very differently. Yeah, well, that's the wager good. before the season on Rivers' failure. Let's, uh, there's another guy not on this list, too, that if you don't like the way the Colts are going— uh, Mike Vrabel's done a hell of a job turning around that Titans team. That team but is. But they a already very... won their games last year. I don't. They I did, mean, but did, did he, he win did coach they... of the year last year? Uh, I don't care. <laughs> did he? What? I don't think what he did. We, what kind of statement is that? Of course you I care. Do. That's like the whole key is that. I don't the, care the, if he won it last year. It's not going to stop him from winning it again if they win that division. If they, yes, it will. If they win the same amount of games, he's not going to win the coach of the year. Right? Who was NFL coach games, of the year last year? Win. I thought it was Shanahan, wasn't it? I could be wrong about that. We'll see what the survey says. I know Brett's typing feverishly right now, but this is what happens when you start to lose your mind. But regardless, I think if, let's say Vrabel did not win Coach of the Year, then this is almost like the default giving it to John him. Harbaugh. Yeah, there you go. It was Harbaugh and the Ravens. Okay, so Vrabel didn't get recognized for that run last year. If they win the division this year, it's almost kind of like the Al Pacino scent of a woman Oscar. Yeah, the scent of a woman is not Al Pacino's greatest role, he didn't win for a Serpico. He didn't win for Injustice for All. He didn't win for a Godfather 1 or 2. They ended up giving it to him later on. It's like the, the Paul Newman Oscar for Color of Money. This is what happens sometimes. I think Vrabel's another list, uh, a name to add to this list, I think. If Tennessee wins 10 games, will he win the Coach of the Year? Uh, I think they need to win 11 games, and I think they need to win the division with that solidified. I think if they do that, and they're a really good football team, if they're 11-5, and five, I think Mike Vrabel needs to be recognized. I do, because he didn't get recognized last year, because usually that voting ends, correct me if I'm wrong, at the end of the regular, regular season. season. Right. So, therefore, this little magical run they went on in the playoffs didn't really get the love from the AP, and maybe it's a little bit of a default there. Is there anybody else you can think of? That was one for me. Is there anybody for you not on the list? I mean, I'm going to pick over on the Lions, but that's not saying a lot. If they win nine games, I don't think that... Yeah, I don't think that. You need to have somebody win win that division. So that's why I thought the Colts. That's why I think the Titans, you know, for the Cardinals. Wow, you so are bad. tying your wagon to Rivers. I'm I'm tying my wagon to Rivers and an offensive it's gonna line. It's going to be bad. It's going to end bad. bad for you, man. Okay. All right. I'm telling you now. It's a bad idea. I look idea. forward to it. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. All right, NFL uh, futures for rookies in 2020. This is where anybody could win. Nobody had Josh Jacobs winning rookie of the year last year. No one. Uh, Joe Burrow is the favorite, plus 220. Edwards Hilaire is at 5-1. to one. Tua is at 7.5-1. to one. I would not take that. 
Uh, Jonathan Taylor is 10 to 1. Swift at 11 to 1. CeeDee Lamb 15 to 1. Uh, Jerry Judy's 15 to 1. Henry Ruggs is 18 to 1. You can see that this is wide open. I mean, out, outside of Burrow. If you don't put, put I take it back. If you see Burrow as the guy, then it's not. But outside of that, it is anybody's, I think, to win. And I would not take chalk and take Burrow. I definitely could see somebody else on this list winning it. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I'm looking at it and I'm comparing the notes and stuff like that, for me, uh, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, this is the problem with the fantasy analyst in me. I see the potential of him having, he's not quite Kareem Hunt, but a Kareem Hunt-esque kind of a season the way he did in his rookie year. And if he does, that might be enough. My worry with the other running backs like Taylor and Swift, I think they're terrific talents. I'm just concerned with the lack of ability to prepare normally in the offseason, how that impacts them for the first six weeks of the season. And is that prohibitive? of them winning rookie of the year. You know, is it all about the finish or is it about the collective season? Because last year, I think it was more about the collective season than the finish for Josh Jacobs. I think you would agree, correct? Yeah, I, I think so. But it was not a strong rookie year, basically. I mean, that's probably part of it. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean you look at it, Kyler Murray was the big favorite going forward. I know you and I had the funny Gardner Minshew yeah, moment Minshew. there. Yeah. We lost some money on that, so uh, you know, let's. That was that was just a fun thing. We that was very... not that far from from well, winning that. If Minshew had one really bad game. If he, if that doesn't happen, he may win. He came I, I back when he came I, back in. He was strong again. He was okay. The best week was that week seventeen, I think, when he came back in the very end I, there. I still like Minshew. I mean, they, they're not they're horrible, but I mean, uh, I, I like that. I think Jerry Judy could have an outside shot at this. If I like, Swift fails. is my favorite guy. So, I, I mean, I don't know if, if he's going to get the carries, but when it's all said and done in two years, we'll be saying mm -hmm. that DeAndre Swift was the best player in this draft. I don't doubt that. But just looking at this list, like everything this year, the Joe Burrow being the favorite is obvious. He's going to get the most attention. It's always going to be on a quarterback. But Clyde Edwards-Alaire at 5-1 is not a terrible wager at all. I think it's a very good wager because he is going to be a guy that's going to finish strong no matter what. And if finishing strong is the lasting impression on the voters, he's going to be that guy because he's going to get, I think, an opportunity before anybody else because he doesn't have anyone blocking. He doesn't have Carrion Johnson blocking him. He doesn't have Marlon Mack blocking and taking away carries. Uh, Damian Williams, forget it. I'm over Damian Williams. I was never on Damian Williams to begin with. I understand at the end last year he had a couple moments, but that was also because Mahomes was playing lights out and it didn't matter who running back was at the time. So... I just don't think outside of Swift, Hilaire, and Burrow that there's anybody else because I think you'd agree, too, is not going to play enough games to even be in this. So that's like burning money, No, right? and it's hard to envision a wide receiver outside of Lamb. They're, they're not really, I don't think, set up to have big years on, on any of these. See, I, I worry about Lamb having a big year. I just don't think there's enough targets going his way in that offense. I mean, you got Amari Cooper, you've got Ezekiel Elliott, you've got a lot of mouths to feed over there, and then CeeDee Lamb's kind of like the know, third. I think it seems to me that there's a lot of games that Cooper doesn't do anything at all. Well, Cooper goes silent in games. Yeah, but those are also Ezekiel Elliott games. That's the problem with that. So no, they have the receipt. Listen, there are games that Prescott throws three touchdowns and none. Yeah, well, games. Michael Gallup had some moments last year. year. What I'm saying is Gallup had some moments too. Well, maybe it's not Gallup, but maybe it's Lamb. That's Why'd a, they draft big, this guy? It's a big maybe. I just think they took the best player on the board, to be honest with you. And maybe they, they really play the best player on the board. Why not? It may be, but once again, I don't think that's a wise bet. You ask me my opinion, I don't think it's a wise bet. There's no reason why he can't. He can, but I don't know if being the number two on the wide receiver of the Cowboys is rookie of the year material. It's better than being the number one on Denver. I can tell you that right now.
Mm, I don't know. Cortland or, Sutton. Ba- or maybe the two on Denver. Are you telling way. me that CD Lamb is going to have the same numbers that Cortland Sutton did last year? Because if so, sign me up for that. Cortland Sutton had a terrific season last year. No, the po- the point is, is Judy went to Denver. I understand. And, I'm not gonna, and I would pick but Lamb. But if Judy over emerges Judy. as the better wide receiver than Cortland Sutton and has Cortland Sutton's number, there's a good shot of that. There's a good shot of that. But well, I don't know about that's this case. If that's the case, and he gets Cortland, Judy Sutton, is the best wide receiver in this draft. But I agree. I don't. I don't love the Denver situation at all. Well, nobody loved the Denver situation last year. I. I don't yeah. love the situation, but I love the talent good. of Cortland Sutton. Cortland Sutton was good. Don't tell me Cortland was Sutton good, wasn't. But it wasn't a great situation. He was very good with subpar quarterback play. So. Drew Locke was not what everybody expected. He was a little bit better than what people expected. And I don't think there's any reason to all of a sudden think Jerry Judy's going to go there and just never do anything. I think that's kind of ridiculous and people are sleeping on him a little bit. I don't like, I, I like Judy a lot, but I don't like, I just, I don't know. I, I see a lot of running. This is going to be a fun football season for us, you and me. If there is one. All right, we'll be back with more fantasy sports today in just a couple of minutes. Don't go away. DailyRoto.com. Learn from the game's best DFS players. We don't just give you premier advice. We play every day. All major sports, all year round, we never stop. Industry-leading DFS tools and custom projections. And now, the DailyRoto.com Optimizer. In minutes, build an optimized lineup for cash games and tourneys. Learn from the game's best DFS players. Join DailyRoto.com. All right, welcome back to Fantasy Sports Today. Craig and Joe back here with you. We're going to go through some of the older players that have achieved at a high level in sports, the oldest players, as a matter of fact. But before we do that, not surprising for me to see uh, some of the comments that were made yesterday that came down late in the day when uh, Horace Grant went on uh, ESPN 1000 in Chicago and absolutely eviscerated Michael Jordan for his, quote, so-called documentary uh, (laughs) and said, quote, it is a downright, outright, complete lie that he leaked information to Sam Mm. Smith in the Jordan Rules book. Uh, Also went on to say, let's talk about it or we can settle it another way. Uh, But uh, either way, the, the point was is that I think that Horace Grant's, well, first of all, Horace Grant's mad that he's, that that came out. And Horace Grant, by the way, agreed to do the documentary. But it's not surprising to me. And, and I he denied it in the documentary, Craig, right? Yes. I remember him saying, I didn't did. do that. That was me. Right. He did. Um, but I can tell you, this is not the first and it won't be the last to come out and say that this was uh, a documentary that the executive producer was Michael Jordan. Now, we needed it during this time. We had to have it. We had so little on television. The first, to me, the first six episodes were about as good a documentary as anything that I've seen. But as Horace Grant said, this so-called documentary, man, like the last four episodes were great, but they were all through the Jordan goggles and not the Horace Grant goggles. And so I, I, I think you're going to hear a lot more of this come out 
uh, amongst other teammates and, and people and players. You know, I mean, Horace seems to have had, look, they seem to have had some issues, the two of them, and that's why Horace got moved on and was on the Magic and all of that, too. And Jordan can think that he did that, and, and Horace can deny that he was the guy that gave him information. But I thought it was a pretty... I don't know. I think you got Tony Kukoc's opinions of Jordan. You got BJ Armstrong's but opinions of Jordan. But it's edited. But it's they edited were edited. Out. But I know BJ was not pulling any punches there. I mean, a lot of his teammates were saying some, I would say, pretty negative things about Jordan. And some of they them, all, but, but there's a lot more that we'll never see. It's uh, Jordan basically gets to watch it and say, "Take this out." But who the hell is going to go out there and just have people bash them for two hours on national television for five straight weeks? Like that's crazy too. That's also that's a bitch fest. That's not a storytelling. So everyone's going to have problems with things. I think I came away, and maybe you have a different opinion, but I certainly came away from the Michael Jordan documentary with a knowledge of this guy was difficult with his teammates. He had high expectations of himself, higher expectations almost or equal than his, for his teammates, and was a bit of a bully, a bit of a prick, a bit of a, a bad guy. But at the end of the day, there was an enormous amount of respect for each other because if not for him, I don't think they've got those rings around their finger. And I don't think a lot of people remember who B.J. Armstrong or John Paxson were necessarily. So I don't know. I mean, it didn't. Jordan didn't come off like perfect roses, but at the end of the day – of course, it's going to be skewed a little bit towards Jordan because... A lot. I don't think just a little. I think it was a lot. Well, so, let me so give you wait, the other quote. Let uh, me give, give me the, the other, other one. one. What's the other one? This is from Morris Grant on the radio yesterday. Uh, I would say it was entertaining, but we know who was there as teammates that about 90% of it, I don't know if I could say it on air, but it's bleep in terms of the realness of it. It wasn't real. 90% huh? of it? 90? This is a direct quote. You know it what? wasn't real, but all that was all edited out of the documentary, if you want to call it a documentary. I don't know. I mean, he, he looked like Scotty Burrell. He looked like a bully to Scotty Burrell. He looked like picking on him all the time. Look, I think Horace Grant is out there like Horace Grant likes to do, and Horace Grant was always a guy who liked to run his mouth a little bit too. And, you know, everyone's got their opinions about situations, but I think it's stupid to say 90% of it wasn't real, especially because you what have What do you guys mean? Like, he played on the Bulls with Michael What do you Jordan mean when you have Dennis wants. Rodman and Scottie Pippen and Phil Jackson, they're telling the same stories or basically saying, yeah, this is exactly what happened with Rodman or yeah, you know, he didn't show up and Rodman going, nope, I didn't show up the next day when I was supposed to. There was a lot of truth in there too. 90% is ridiculous. 90% yeah. it shouldn't have been on television, Craig. That's a complete exaggeration by a guy who is, frankly, I mean, nobody was talking about Horace Grant uh, two months ago, and now all of a sudden he becomes a relevant figure, so he's going to go out there and run his mouth a little bit. I, I'm i sorry. If we believe everybody that goes out there and just runs their mouth, 90% of the documentary was BS? Come on, Horace. That's nonsense. If he came out, I'd have more respect for him. How do say, you know that? How do you know 90% is true? I don't know either way. So how can you call BS on Horace Grant? How can you call BS on Michael Jordan? Because you don't know either. I, I'm not. We don't know. But you my explanation explana explana is that if I have a player that played with him saying that some of it is BS, that means some of it is BS. But what about I'm not the saying players? that it has to be 90%, but I told you from day one, the last four episodes were in the view of the player. <laughs> not the people who were producing it. And that is the point. It was from right. his lens, not ours, not anybody else's. And so the show got made the way that he wanted it to get made and nobody else. 
But at the end of the day, Craig, it wasn't like they didn't have all these other interviews and all these other people telling their versions of the story, of which happens to Of course, and it's edited by him. We don't even know what we missed. We have Listen, no idea. As somebody who worked in editing and in film, I can tell you, you can only edit so much to make it... I know everybody thinks like, you, well, you could do whatever you want and trick things around. With that kind of enormous story and so many people moving in and out of this, there's only so much you can do before all the footage starts to tell a narrative. There's only so much you can do to skew things in your direction. That is the when biggest bunch enough. of BS that you have really? ever said on the show. Why yes, is that? Because because who is the who who put on the best documentary of all time in the history of sports? I don't who. Ken Burns. What did Ken Burns say about the documentary? What? Before it even started, said it's going to be BS because Michael Jordan had complete editorial control of it. Wait, Same thing. So Ken, I'm going to so, take Ken Burns' word over yours. No so offense. Ken Burns, the guy who, in the 10th inning of baseball, decided to tell the story of 9-11, didn't show one piece of footage from the Mets-Braves game or Piazza home run? I will take his word over yours, yes. Well, over. I don't know what Ken Burns had to do with that documentary of Michael Jordan. And I, look, I, when, I think Ken, complete Ken, BS— Ken Burns came out before it even started and said, you're not going to get a full view of what a documentary is because this guy has editorial control over it. No one said a word. Everyone said, oh, you know what? Ken Burns, what a joker. You know what? He was right. He you was right. You can watch the, the narrative of baseball documentary by Ken Burns, and you could get a really strong idea and opinion about certain things that went on because it's Ken Burns' directorial choices to tell yeah. the narrative in a certain way. So anybody who's behind the reins of as a director, and you can call it BS all you want. Like I said, I was in this business earning paychecks in that business for 10 plus years in that business. And I am telling you, at the end of the day, whether it's a documentary, whether it's a film, whatever that is, or it's a narrative film, it doesn't matter. Whoever's in charge at the end of the final cut is going to give you their opinion within the story, even a documentary filmmaker. So Ken Burns can call it BS. Horace Grant can say 90% of it's BS. But at the end of the day, when you have other people telling you the same stories and giving you the opinions that are close to it, I just think it's complete hyperbole to call it 90% of it's BS. I think that's ludicrous. Then why did you watch it? Because then it was just a farce. And I didn't find that documentary to be a farce at all. Did you I find it to be a farce? 90% means it's I a I thought farce. it was entertaining, but toward the, the last few episodes, I thought it was very self-serving. But I think you I think you're I think you're buying into which is I'm shocked because you hate hot take stuff. 90% of this is BS. Well, no, maybe 10% of it or maybe one particular instance that had to do with Horace Grant was 100% wrong. That's fine. But to go out there and take a shot at it like, oh, 90% it's all nonsense and to discredit it completely is also ridiculous on the other end. Is it completely yeah, honest? It, it, no. it probably is. It probably is ridiculous by Horace Grant. But I, but I, again, I think that a larger percent than what you're giving credit for was cut. That's my guess on this. I, can, I, I have no know. facts I saw to prove a lot it. Of, I saw a lot of negative stories about Michael Jordan and a lot of people, basically teammates and opponents, saying a lot of negative there, things there about Michael Jordan. There isn't a person who watched after 10 episodes who would think less of Michael Jordan after that. Stop it. Not well, one person. You interview 10 people that watched it, 10 people are going to say, he was amazing. My wife thought he was a good baseball player after watching that. Oh, see, that was the one thing to me that, that was the one hyperbole that 
Oh, I thought so don't we have something here? Oh, well, but we talked about it at the time. But there's we can talk about it again now. As the show kept going on, there was more of that. The beginning told the story of Michael Jordan, and then all of of how he came up and who we played with and the coaches and who were there. And then as the story continued on, it was oh my gosh, and 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 oh my, you know, somebody uh, stepped on my shoe that motivated me to go out and get that guy. It was ridiculous. It was nonsense. A lot of some of that I was probably I've I can't say one like way or the other, but it, it felt sorry. ridiculous. I've known people like that in my life to come out and say ninety percent of it's BS. I'm is, not disagreeing not with that fact. It, it was that's a ridiculous statement by Horace Grant too. But it right. also shows you, and it's going to continue to show. This will not be the end. You'll see that more people will come out and say, hey, there was stuff in there that I said, or there was other stuff that just didn't make it. And it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. And and by the way, I don't blame Michael Jordan for doing it. I would have done the exact same thing. I'm Michael Jordan turning down $100 million for an endorsement, and you're coming to me and you wanted me to sit down with you for a week? Who, who even knows how long? I am gonna make myself look as good as I possibly can. I would have done the exact same thing. I but think, I think that, that has to be recognized. I think where the documentary went wrong, in my opinion, is when they kept handing him the video to watch other people and get his live reactions to what people said. I think that what that does is discredit when Reggie Miller says something or Isaiah Thomas says something, whatever it does. So let Jordan have his speech about it. Let Isaiah Thomas say his piece about it, which I thought that they did. But then when they would give him the thing and let him react in live time to it, that to me is where you could move the needle over and say, okay, obviously this is Jordan now kind of debunking, dismissing, discrediting the other guy. That to me is where they went wrong, but that was a choice made at some point in time by the people who are at the top of it. Maybe it's Jordan and that's fine. I came away with it, not thinking less of Jordan, but I certainly have a truer picture of Jordan as less of this godlike figure and more of this, boy, this is kind of an un unbearable jerk at times, but man, he certainly knew how to win. And I am not going to say that those things that he did was fake in terms of saying, you know, you know what, that guy walking past me motivated me. I know for me personally too, there's been times where I've been highly motivated by people that you think snub you in one way or another. And it's a motivating thing and not everybody works like that, but I think it's crazy to think that nobody George does. George Carl walked past him in a restaurant. That's what made him want to beat George Carl. It might not make him want to beat George Carl, but it might be something he can turn psychologically into that thing. I mean, it's a psychological. I guess, I guess so. But you know yeah. what? For me, every sport psychologist. It, does, it, that it, it didn't fly for me. It That's fair. Fly. Because again, uh, it's a self-serving show. It was entertaining. It was great. And uh, I'm Michael Jordan. I'm gonna make you come to me with a documentary. Sure, no problem. It's gonna be exactly the way that I want it to be. I would have done exactly the same thing. No question about it. All right, we never got to our uh, old people, so we'll handle that <laughs> next for you here on Fantasy Sports Today. Don't go away. DailyRoto.com. Learn from the game's best DFS players. We don't just give you premier advice. We play every day. 
All major sports, all year round, we never stop. Industry-leading DFS tools and custom projections. And now, the DailyRoto.com Optimizer. In minutes, build and optimize lineups for cash games and tourneys. Learn from the game's best DFS players. Join DailyRoto.com. Welcome back to Fantasy Sports Today. Craig Mish back with you, of course. And wow, it was a banner weekend for NASCAR. In fact, if you guys didn't notice, it was the biggest NASCAR race watched in the United States since 2017. Almost 7 million viewers on Sunday. And I'm guessing a lot of average fans of sports just looking for something to watch. And by the way, who was all over it when he came on with us last week? It was Matt Sells from Fantasy Alarm. He was the NASCAR Writer of the Year last year. And we got to bring him back on, of course, this week and get his thoughts on the upcoming race. Matt, thanks for coming on again. What's going on? Oh, you know, just trying to pump out content for Wednesday night's NASCAR race. It's a pretty quick turnaround here. Not really used to it in the NASCAR circles. Um, This is the first time that I can remember that they've run a midweek cup race since I think like the early 1970s, which I wasn't alive for. So, um, but yeah, I had uh, several friends of mine who don't usually watch NASCAR and they watched NASCAR and they enjoyed it. So they might start watching some more of it. So uh, let's hope for another good showing on Wednesday night. Yeah. And and look, that's the thing is that the average person who hasn't had any sports like me uh, is (laughs) tuning in. And I did, I didn't see the whole race, but I tuned in. I'm like, wow, you know, it's like, it's almost like uh, UFC in, in a bit where it's like we're gravitating to the sports. We want to check them out without the fans. And then once we get used to it, it becomes something that was uh, that was interesting. And so before we get to this week's race, let's take it back to last week. And let's take a look at the uh, results from the race at Darlington on Sunday. Uh, Kevin Harvick, as you see here, uh, ended up with 54 points. He wins the race his 50th all-time uh, Alex Bowman finished second, Kurt Busch third, Chase Elliott fourth, and of course, Denny Hamlin closing it out with 43 points. So, uh, Matt, as we bring you back in here, I know that you pretty much thought it was going to go down like this, almost according to plan, and a uh, little bit of an interesting start for at least one driver, but in the end, Harvick was the winner. Yeah, um, I was all over Kevin Harvick all week uh, based on his track history at this track. Um, he had looked pretty good in the first few races this year. Uh, I really liked him. Uh, so it was really quite nice to see that he dominated. I mean, he dominated a little bit more than I thought he would, leading 159 uh, of the 293 laps. But, yeah, I mean, Kyle Busch was the only one that failed pre-race inspection, so he had to start from the rear, uh, which, you know, he made a he made a valiant comeback, and then he had some more trouble, so he, he didn't quite wind up with, I think, where he wanted to start. Um but it'll certainly add fuel to his fire for Wednesday night because he's going to have to start 26th uh, Wednesday night. So um, that'll make him a, a pretty interesting play for both DFS and wagering on. Yeah, a, a interesting uh, note that one of the drivers, Matt, didn't even finish the first lap of the race. What happens if you had him involved? In <laughs> yeah, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. was kind of on brand. Uh, they call him Recky for a reason. Um, in fact, he got fired from his last uh 
car team because the car owner thought he wrecked too many cars. And bam, first race back in two months, the guy spun out coming off of turn two and hit the inside wall and ended his day without even making it back to the start-finish line once. So, yeah, that wasn't great. I know he was played in 15%, I think, of some of the big DraftKings GPP tournaments. That's a big number, yeah. Yeah, that's going to that's gonna kind of crush your ability to, <laughs> to really climb the leaderboards if uh, one of your guys doesn't even start, basically didn't even start the race for all intents and purposes, and then cost you quite a bit of points because he started, he started uh, I think, in the mid-20s and then you know, finished 40th. So that that's not a good start to the, to the restarting of the season for Stenhouse. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before we get to this week's race, uh, look, Matt, you follow NASCAR very closely for many years and all of the work that you did. What what were the biggest differences, if there were any differences, watching this race for you on Sunday? Um, So I have to commend Fox for their broadcast because I honestly couldn't, had I not known that they, that Mike Joy and Jeff Gordon and most of the team were all doing it from a remote location, uh, I wouldn't have been able to tell. It was almost like they were at the track. Um, I mean, the, the weirdest thing for me was not seeing any fans in the stands because you're used to, you know, those, those aerial shots still show fans in the stands and you can see, um, in the pre-race stuff, drivers signing autographs and taking selfies and they didn't have to do that. Um, and then I guess the other most jarring thing for me was seeing Kevin Harvick's victory lane photo after the race, because there's nobody in victory lane with him. Normally there's you know, all of his team, his crew chief, right. some, some folks from, you know, a sponsor, which was Bush, uh, beer. And there'd be a bunch of champagne and confetti going. And instead it's just him. And he's got a big old black mask over his face. So you can only see from like here up. And so it was just a weird, it just a weird feeling. Um, but I mean, other than that, the broadcast, I couldn't tell really any difference from it. Yeah, and and I think that with other sports, maybe that's the key is that there's like that shock value initially. Because look, NASCAR packs them in; they can get a hundred thousand at a race if they want. Uh, but once you get past the initial shock value, and then you realize you're watching competitive sports of any kind, I give NASCAR a ton of credit, and you you're hearing essentially negativity about all of the major sports and all the possibilities well listen if nascar could get it going i understand it's a little bit easier for them there's not a lot of it's not a contact sport they're in a car uh but look the numbers do not lie we were so infatuated with wrestlemania with the numbers that they did uh, nascar made that look silly i mean seven million people watching on sunday yeah that's that's a heap ton of people i mean and consider the, the fact the daytona 500 is the right. biggest uh yeah so yeah i mean that's considered the Super Bowl of NASCAR is the Daytona 500, which kicks off the season in, in early February, like a week after the Super Bowl. So, you know, you've got people, there's no other sports going on then either. And the fact that this one beat, you know, was the highest watch since the, I think the 2017 Daytona 500 is pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. All right, Matt. So look, I mean, you know, the respect factor in this game lasts for about 10 minutes. He did great last week. We're already on to the next week. You've got to throw it away and move on. Uh, so uh, today is Tuesday. So tomorrow night, Wednesday night, they are going to air this again. Is it on Fox? Is it on? Uh, it's on FS1. Okay, so it's on Fox Sports 1 Wednesday night. Tell us, for everybody who's out there, a little bit about the race. We have a lot of people from a wagering perspective who are probably watching. And, and by the way, a lot of people who may have just caught their first NASCAR race over the weekend. It's possible. Yeah, so this isn't going to be a replay. 
it will be at the same track. It'll be at Darlington Raceway. So when you turn it on, you might think, oh, God, they're reshowing the race from Sunday just to get more airtime. Nope, it's a completely new race at Darlington Raceway on Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on uh, FS1. The things that are important, you'll see that the race number will say Toyota 500. Well, they're not actually running 500 miles. They're running 500 kilometers. So Wednesday night's race will be about 70 laps shorter than Sunday's race because it'll be 227 laps this time as opposed to 293. So you'll have uh, guys starting further back will have a little bit less opportunity to move forward quite as quickly. Um, laps led are going to be down a bit, I would assume, because there's, again, 70 laps less um, this time around. The other important things to know for DFS and wagering is that they inverted the starting spots from the finish positions from Sunday. Hmm. So if you finished in spots 21 through 40 on Sunday, that's where you're starting on Wednesday night. Okay. If you finished in the top 20 on Sunday, your spots get reversed. So Kevin Harvick won it on Sunday. That means he's starting 20th on Wednesday night. Alex Bowman finished second. That means he starts 19th on Wednesday night. Ryan Priest finished 20th on Sunday. So he will be the pole sitter for Ooh. Wednesday night's race. And Ty Dillon finished 19th in Sunday's race. So he'll start second uh, for Wednesday night. So in terms of wagering and DFS, that makes a big difference because you have a bunch of expensive guys that are going to be starting further back which means position differential is going to be a huge factor in this race for DFS. It also now, changes some of the odds because if right. your big name guys come further from further back, theoretically it makes it a little tougher to win. Although we saw Kurt Busch start 22nd on Sunday and finish third. So it's possible. You can yeah. do it. Yeah, it can, it can happen. Um, so, you know, I understand that, you know, you'll really dive in very deep a little bit later on. And, of course, people at FantasyAlarm.com can check out all of your analysis and information aside from us. Give us a little bit of a preview as to what you may be thinking, either on the DFS side or the wagering side for Wednesday night. So the tricky part is going to come in with the cheaper guys in DFS because a bunch of the cheaper guys had really good runs on Sunday, like Ty Dillon, who is usually less than $6,000 on both sides, or Ryan Priest, who's pretty cheap, or John Hunter Nemechek. Uh, who's usually pretty cheap. Those guys had really good runs on Sunday. So they're going to start close to the front, which is going to reduce their upside because they're likely going to drop back once the big guns like Harvick and Kyle Busch and Martin Truex Jr. and um, Eric Jones and folks like that make it to the front. For wagering, I think you kind of still have to go with Kevin Harvick. I mean, he's still my favorite play, even though he's starting 20th, and even though he's only plus 400 now for the odds uh, at, at most of the books. So he's by far the pro prohibitive favorite. Um, but he's already announced he's going to run the same car that he ran on Sunday. They're running that on Wednesday. So you already saw that car go from 6th to 1st and then run away with the race. He won by more than two seconds by the end of the race. He led more than half the laps. And... That was the first day race run at Darlington since 2014. The rest of them have all been night races. So the key thing, the key takeaway that a lot of people won't necessarily realize 
is it pay attention to who did really well in the back half of Sunday's race? Because the temperatures in the back half of Sunday's race are going to be basically what the starting temperatures are for Wednesday night's race. As the temperature cools down, cars drive differently, the track handles differently. So the guys that ran really well in the last 30, 40 laps of Sunday's race are going to probably start pretty well uh, Wednesday night's race. Interesting. All right. Some really good analysis there, Matt. Um, by the way, real quick, before you go, what's the next race after Wednesday nights? Is it this uh, weekend? Sunday. Yeah. Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, which would be the okay. 24th for their traditional Coca-Cola 600, which is a huge race. That's probably the second most important race of the season behind the Daytona 500. So right. that'll be at Charlotte Motor Speedway, 600 miles under the lights on Sunday night. All right. What we'll do is we'll check back with you again next week. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Congrats on all the success so far. And it's good to have some sports back. That's for sure. Thanks for coming on. Sure thing. All right. Matt Sells there from Fantasy Alarm. We'll take a quick time out here on Fantasy Sports today. Joe Pizzapia will be back with me. We continue on our fantasy discussion or reality discussion as we move closer to getting sports back. You're watching FST right here on Sports Grid. dailyrodo.com learn from the game's best dfs players we don't just give you premier advice we play every day all major sports all year round we never stop industry-leading dfs tools and custom projections and now the dailyrodo.com optimizer in minutes build an optimized lineup for cash games and tourneys learn from the game's best dfs players join dailyrodo.com And welcome back to Fantasy Sports Today. Craig and Joe here back with you as we move over to a story that I think that we all want to see happen, but realistically, I don't see it. Bartolo Colon wants to continue to pitch. He probably can. He's got nothing to lose. A few PEDs, and this guy could be right back there on the mound like he used to be. <laughs> I, I, I could definitely see it. And by the way, he's already been popped. He's got nothing to lose. Everybody likes him. Um... I, I suppose it's not impossible, but he's picked the wrong year, unfortunately, to talk about wanting to come back. Yeah. I mean, I was starting to think it might be the right year to start talking about it because he's like, hey, what is it, like 10, 12 starts at the most? Maybe I get a playoff share? <laughs> I mean, you know, worse things could happen. There's there's definitely some guys out there in the Orioles rotation, uh, back end of maybe the Giants rotation. There's definitely some spots where I go, eh, maybe I would look at 58-year-old uh, uh, Bartolo Colon or whoever old he is now. I can tell you, still to this day, I can see it crystal clear in my mind. I went to go see a game uh, at Angel Stadium at the time, and Bartolo Colon was pitching that night. And still something to this day I've never seen ever in my life in baseball, never saw on the field myself, never seen anybody do. Bartolo Colon, you know, the guys do long toss, right, where they're trying to get stretched out for the games. A lot of pitchers do that. He's on the left field line, and I'm on the left field line in the front row, just watching him warm up, right? And obviously, Bartolo Colon, this was Bartolo with full curl. This is Bartolo Colon with full belly, the whole thing, right? And the guy keeps moving back and back and back, and he starts throwing this long toss with this guy. And a lot of times you see the long toss, there's a little bit of a loop on the ball, right? You'd agree, a little bit of a little bit of a arc between him and the, uh, the guy he's playing catch with. The guy goes into dead center field, right? He's on the wall, and he's throwing long toss from the left field line 
to the guy at the wall in center field. And it is on a, uh, on a straight line. The ball never got higher than Bartolo Colon's head. And I kept watching it and he kept doing it and he kept watching and kept doing it. Then he tells the guy to move and the guy moves to right field. And now he's on the warning track in right field and he's doing it again. And I'm telling you, the ball did not get higher at any point than maybe five feet above Bartolo Colon's head. This is from the left field line to right field warning track and he's getting loose. The guy has one of the most magical arms I've ever seen in my life. And that moment on, I had a different perspective of Bartolo Colon, the pitcher, and what God gave him as a gift of a right arm, because that's all I could say. Have you in your time in baseball ever seen or heard anything quite like that? Because on a line, I've never seen that before. Um, I mean, I, I, I'd have to pay more attention to warm-ups, but um, it sounds it sounds cool. I mean, I'm talking straight as an arrow, like, like if somebody were to shoot an arrow or, or shoot a missile... <laughs> It was straight. Never yeah, got. Yeah, I mean, look, he's got to. He has to be skilled. I know he gets poked at, but he's he's got to be skilled for play as long as he did. I, I think I've told the story when we were on the radio side of him with me, where he threw the ball at me. I think I told you that one. At right? you? <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, think I've ever yeah. heard this. What do you mean at yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. He. Um, what did happened you see was something to him. <laughs> no, it was he did it as a joke. We were. Uh, okay. I was done. I was done doing interviews in the uh in the clubhouse and remember the spring training clubhouses are minor league clubhouses they're not like the major league clubhouses right and so as i'm walking out the door um like like i'm on like it's a double door and as i'm walking out the left side of the door that's open the right side of the door is closed it's one of those big push doors that it comes open and he just takes a ball and throws it like as hard as he possibly can to scare the bleep out of me at the do- at the door right next to me so literally as i'm walking out i hear bam and i look and, and he's like why you what did you do what did, did you he was messing did around. you do something did you do maybe something maybe i did maybe did i did you, but you but say yeah, something somebody else you didn't like story. uh you're uh, after my story i am and then hearing your story i'm just glad you're here in one piece because you, you, you were this close too. he scared the crap out of me he did Mish, he He's I'm me. telling you, I, I know you're like, oh, you know, those Kobex, those 105 miles an hour and all this other stuff. Oh, but he was five feet away. You know, I, I don't care. Bartolo Colon is one of the great arms that has ever existed. <laughs> it scared me. Like, it you're was so loud. Him. It was like, bam. And I'm like, did it put a hole in the back? And he's like, wall? and he's like, like, he's messing with me, you know? What, he hit the door or the wall? The door. It, was there a dent? In, it's got to be a dent in the door, right? Oh, uh, you know what? I, you know, I never thought about that. Next, next time I'm, it was the visiting clubhouse. Next time I go, I'll see if there's, if there, I, you know, I just was like shocked. That's scary that stuff, dude. That's and we walked out to the field together. He's funny. He's funny. Guy. Oh, he, I'm sh- like, he seems like, look, I remember, and this is a true story too, in our, uh, my old radio days of the old network where we used to work. I remember Saturday night doing the game live the night he hit the home run. I was on air live shield. when that happened and that we too. had, and we had call-ins. It was, I want to say the Padres. It was a late game. The Mets yes, were on the West right. Coast. It was against the Padres. And him hitting the home run and me being me, just losing my mind about it. This is the greatest thing ever. And we got the, we immediately got the producer to get the call. We just kept every, for the next four segments, however much was left in the show, we just kept running the Bartolo Colo thing after. And people were calling in, celebrating the big man. That was a, that was a beautiful moment. I mean. You know, Shields does not like talking about that. 
Really? Yes, he's God, very upset James with Shields that. Who gave up that. I he's pretty, embarrassed. He was very like, embarrassed. If you asked me who gave up that home run, even now I, could, I couldn't tell you until you just well, said it was Shields. Listen, I'm just telling you, he was really embarrassed by that, James Shields. Because remember, mean, Cologne couldn't hit at all. No, like, oh, I remember. The helmet was coming off. I remember it quite well. Hey, man, yeah. the big boy got into one. It happens sometimes, man. It no, just he happens. did. I, I just remember Shields, like them trying to talk to him about it, and he was like, no. Wow. Anyway, so uh, he is uh, 46, and you would think that he would be the oldest pitcher to come back. You would be so far off. Here is a list of the oldest players to ever play sports. And again, there are others in some other sports. Believe it or not, they're even older than this. But let me give you the uh, short list of things that you may or may not recognize. George Blanda, after playing quarterback, ended up as the punter. For the Raiders, he has football cards where he looks like 90 years old, literally, like gray hair. <laughs> You're right, I've uh, seen them. With the Raiders, uh, 48 years old at the end of his career. Uh, Satchel Paige, in a little bit of a gimmick, was brought back, I believe, by Charlie Fidley in Oakland. So a lot of these are gimmicks, to make no mistake about it, but Satchel Paige was 59 years old, and unfortunately, Satchel Paige did not have a chance to play in the major leagues for a long period of time. Uh, in the NBA, somebody named Nat Hickey, I, I think I may even have this wrong, was 45? No one no one over the age of 45 has ever played in the NBA? I guess That's so. a lot of running, Craig. It's a lot of running. <laughs> Isn't Udonis Haslam like 45? I don't know. But, I don't know. Uh, I just, but, 45, but Hickey, I can't imagine running. This was like. also in the 30s or 40s. There, there was an international player who played until he was 48, but I, don't, I didn't feel like it was quite the same. And... Um, we have golf. Uh, Gary Player played on the tour until he was 73 and then went on the senior tour. I love Gary Player. Very nice guy. Wait, uh, he wasn't 73 on the senior tour? He was 73 on the regular tour? Maybe he was 73 on the senior tour. I got to look at that. 73 is pretty old. That, that's, I just assumed you meant the senior tour the whole time when I saw 73 next to Gary Player's name. That's that's incredible. If he was Yeah, no, it has to be the senior tour. It has to be the right. senior I tour. Be, okay. I, can't, yeah. I can't be right about Se- that. Yeah. 73. I mean, you're probably yeah, like 30 senior, year old guys. <laughs> the senior tour is the best thing ever. It's like guys could not wait to get on the senior tour because the second that they were able to, they would go and they would beat everybody and win money. Is the senior tour still as, you know, it's as a kid, no, I remember. I don't, I don't the se- think it is at all. Yeah. Right? But you no. understand what I was saying. In the 80s and the 90s, especially. It was huge. It, it was, was huge. huge. And I remember. Palmer, I, Nicholas, Haler. Oh, that was so much Keith fun. Fuzzy Seller, Blake. Lee Trevino, yes. all those guys. Yes. And I remember and, specifically on Sundays watching that. And my uncle, who's a huge golf guy, got yeah. me into golf as a kid. And I'd be watching. He would always be watching the senior tour. And I can't even remember seeing it on TV. Maybe it's on Golf Network. I don't I guess golf. Yeah, Channel. no, I, I used to cut uh, when I lived in Sarasota. They used to go there every year. It was called the uh, Inv- Sarasota Invitational. Something, oh, something Invitational. And they would pair up a senior with a Hall of Famer in baseball. You can imagine the fun that I had. It oh, was yeah. all every single year was there. And I had a chance to talk to all those guys. And then I'll never forget the year that Fred Couples was eligible to go play on the senior tour. He just went in there and died. And I know it's still now. a thing. Like, I know it exists still. I'm just saying it doesn't Bernard exist. Longer, Brett, Brett it, mentioned he's the one that's dominating. Uh, yeah. I, I know the senior tour exists still. I just, it doesn't exist in the same way it did. And I guess, you know, maybe times have changed or a lot of the golfers who've made so much money now don't need the senior tour or care. I'm not sure they just, why. You know, but that was a thing in the eighties and nineties. That was, they have huge. one in Boca Raton too. Um, They've had one in the past. Well, I know John Daly was on it because I saw, I remember the end of the John Daly 30 for 30. He was on the senior tour now. And, um, you know, 
talking about like hanging out with the older guys and how they've all kind of embraced him and stuff like that and how important that was for him. But yeah, I just, I just remember it being televised as like an event and like a thing. It's like, Oh look, you know, the, it's the senior championship or whatever. And just, I don't know. It just seemed like a great television event and it just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And maybe it's just me, maybe it is for other people, but it's certainly not nearly the national acclaimed event. It was back 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Martina Navratilova, let's go back to this, was 49 years old uh, when she was on the tennis tour. And then Gordie Howe br was brought back essentially to play a shift, from what I understand here. Um, I think he played on Hartford, if I'm not mistaken. I don't Who know, was the shortstop of the uh, White Minnie Sox? Minnie Minoso. Minnie Minoso, right? Minoso. Now, yeah. well, how old was he? He was older too, right? He was in his 50s. Right. He was in his 50s. Satchel Paige was 174 years old, I think. Yes, exactly. Yes, he was you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know that's one of those great things like you're never gonna quite have the answer to questions like how old was satchel page as a rookie <laughs> you know like how, if i had to put it to you what would you say he was i mean i know i kind of put you on the spot here but just for fun do you when think he, he was, was when he was like a rookie or or retired like when did satchel page in your mind when he finally quit baseball how old was he when he walked away do you think he was 50 like they say people he could have been he could have been it's possible I, it's it's definitely possible. I think I, I I think so for sure. I remember Jimmy Connors being older and having a run at the U.S. Open. I don't think he was forty nine, but I remember him being older and having a big run there at it some feels, point. It feels, I mean, it just you forget that guys played so long, and then yet they yeah. could never touch some of these ages and women. Never. Yeah. I mean, how was the Gordy Howe sixty nine one? How did that work out? He came back to play a shift because he wanted to play in five decades, maybe something. Ah, like uh, right. Very similar to Minnie Minoso. Right, same kind of thing. So except there for go. Minnie Minoso was not as old as Satchel Page. I remember brought him back for a spaceman day. Bill Lee was playing independent baseball in his fifties. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. that. I remember Jack Morris was playing independent baseball well into his forties. Uh, some guys just don't want to stop playing. They just they well, just now we may have the boxing right. We may have uh, Mike Tyson. 50. Holy, holy, well, Holyfield's probably the older one, right? Oh, you know what? That's a good question, Craig. I'm not sure. I mean, Tyson yeah. kind of hit no, first. No, you know, you're right. Tyson came in. Tyson hit first in 86, so, yeah, but I, yeah, again, yeah. I don't know older. I don't know if that's a relative thing because Tyson was like yeah. a phenom out of the Olympics. So Mike Tyson was like 22 years old when he was champ or some crazy thing like that. He was so young when he was champion. So I, I don't know. I would venture to say Evander Holyfield is younger than Mike Tyson. I got to uh, sit next to Evander Holyfield once at an event, and I could tell you. There's no amount of money you could pay me to let that man punch me. It's none. It, I don't think it exists. He is a building of a human being. I can't imagine getting hit by Evander Holyfield. I mean, I look, you know, one of the things where you look up and you look at the guy and you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not getting in the ring with that guy. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. No way. <laughs> All right. That will do it for our show today. Thanks again to Matt Sells for previewing tonight's NASCAR race. And thanks to, all of our great producers and editors. Uh, also for my co-host Joe Pizapia, I'm Craig Mish. We'll be right back here tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern for another edition of Fantasy Sports Today. Also, make sure you like and subscribe and set your notifications to on if you're watching us on YouTube so you can catch us every single day as soon as the show is over on demand. Have a great day, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 11. See you. DailyRoto.com. Learn from the game's best DFS players. We don't just give you premier advice. We play every day. All major sports, all year round, we never stop. Industry-leading DFS tools and custom projections. And now, the DailyRoto.com Optimizer. In minutes, build an optimized lineup for cash games and tourneys. Learn from the game's best DFS players. Join DailyRoto.com.